Canterbury Tales, Chapter 7, Shaky Days. As time marches on, people tend to forget that there were two major seismic events that rocked Canterbury. The devastating and terrible earthquake, New Zealand's worst natural disaster which occurred in February 2011, and the stronger but less tragic 7.1 magnitude earthquake that woke us up at 4.35am on the morning of September the 4th, 2010. It had been a long, hard, cold week, and I was really looking forward to my Saturday sleeping as we snuggled deep into our cosy, warm bed. Waking from a deep sleep, I felt the bed rocking slightly, and naturally thought Elaine was rolling over. And I put my arm across her for a cuddle, inching open a droopy eyelid to notice the time of 4.35, glowing back at me from my bedside clock radio. The rocking of the bed started to slowly increase, and a faint, dull roar started to build, and I decided that either Elaine was having a fit an airliner was about to land on us, or we were experiencing an earthquake. Little did we realise that this was just the start of it. There was still another 44 seconds left to endure. Now generally, 45 seconds is not a great deal of time in the scheme of things. However, I can quite honestly say that this was the longest three quarters of a minute of my life. The faint, dull roar intensified to a crescendo, just as if a 747 jumbo jet was landing inches above us. The bed turned into a very angry, wildly bucking bronco, and I grabbed hold of Elaine with one arm and grabbed the side of the mattress with the other, told her I loved her, and began to make my peace with my maker. It is amazing what goes through your mind at times like this, an interesting thing to experience. However, I would have been more than happy to have given this insight a miss. I had endured a near-death experience a number of years earlier, when I nearly drowned as my firstborn and I were dragged offshore in a rip on an Australian beach after the lifeguards had gone home. However, at the time, I was so busy fighting for both our lives that I didn't have time to think about much else. 45 seconds, though, with nothing to do but lie there, left me with two options. One was to scream. However, Elaine was quietly enduring it, so I went with option, option two and reviewed my life to date. I came to the very satisfying conclusion that I had achieved a lot of what I had intended to achieve by this stage of my life, Our children were healthy and maturing into great people. I was now living a very simple life, but in a great environment, hopefully earthquake notwithstanding. And if these were my last moments on this plane of existence, then I was going out, cuddled up to the the woman I loved and adored. Not a bad epitaph, I decided, as I also noticed the bed was slowly coming to a rest. The jet had obviously landed. As Elaine burst out of bed to check the kids, I glanced again at the clock, but it was lost in the darkness. The power was off, and everything was inky, blackness, and eerily still. I crunched my way up the hall over broken somethings all over the floor, after hastily throwing on some pants. Elaine had beaten me to the torch, and we were all assembling in the lounge room, just like a young family on Christmas morning, but without the joy. While the interior of the cottage had been trashed as if our flock of arapara sheep had taken a shortcut through it, the structure appeared to be still hanging together. It would be a couple of hours before daybreak when we could really assess the damage. I was particularly anxious to check the state of health of our creatures now we knew the family was safe. We all rugged up against the early morning cold, sitting in candlelight, listening to reports coming in from the outside world on a battery-powered radio. Like with us, there was not much to report while it was still dark, apart from the geotechnical details of the massive 7.1-scale earthquake, epicentered not too many paddock, paddocks away from us. Dawn arrived at last, and after a quick reconnoitre of the farm, 
I was relieved to report that all was, all was well. One of the rabbit hutches had fallen, but a nearby tree had gently broken its fall, and Cadbury Rabbit was fine. Shiloh, one of our young Stadio Packer boys, was in an adjoining paddock from the one he had been in at nightfall, but his frightened jump was obviously high enough not to do any damage to him or the fence. What couldn't be noticed at the time, though, was the effect the quake would have on the fertility of our chickens and rabbits and visitors. As I returned to the cottage, I noticed the two red brick chimneys sitting atop the roof at very creative angles and groaned. The last few years have been a financial nightmare, but Elaine, thank goodness, had been adamant that we must maintain our insurances and how wise she had been. Of all the places in New Zealand, the Canterbury Plains were regarded as one of the least prone areas to a major earthquake. Major fault lines lie under the Southern Alps, on the same system that ran under the Auckland and Wellington, and ultimately linked New Zealand to the Pacific Rim of Fire. The quietly sleeping Greendale Fault, that had lain undetected for thousands of years, had chosen our minuscule moment on the planet to roll over into a more comfortable position. Reviewing the momentous start of the day, any thoughts of my sleep are now long gone, we all agreed that we had survived it extremely well. On the positive side, everyone was at least physically fine, and the additions to the cottage on three sides were not as I expected hanging off it, and the house appeared perfectly livable, though a seriously major clean-up was required. The animals were also fine. On the negative side, we had no power. Much to our teenage son's chagrin, who were eager to log on, sign in, load up and rejoin and seek sanctuary in their various virtual worlds, Actually, this did have a positive side, as they had no option but to help with the clean-up. Not knowing how long the power was to be off was a worry. While we were able to use the coal range for heating and cooking, <clears throat> without power, the pump that supplied the water from our well was not operating, so the taps were dry. This was a problem with six humans to hydrate, and a serious concern with hundreds of creatures not having water pumped to their various troughs or water containers refilled. With my befuddled brain still having to terms with the weird start of the day, it took me a minute or two to, before I remembered the emergency water supply. A couple of years earlier, we had been subjected to a snowstorm that had lasted two days and had been ferocious in its intensity. It's taken a whole day to chainsaw the fallen trees and huge limbs that had blocked the driveway and our access to the outside world, and we had been without power for a few days. Water had been a major issue then, though fortunately we had had fewer animals, and why we were able to convert snow into water was not a happy time. I decided then that from now on we would have some emergency water stored away. It was to the collection of 20-litre containers of two-year-old water that I had hidden away at the back of an old shed that I was headed. While the water smelt a little bit musty and plasticky, it was wet, and if used judiciously would hopefully last us for washing and toilet duties, and should boil up fine in a billy until the power came back on. This still left the animals, though, and they should last a reasonable time consuming what they already had until the water started flowing again. I rejoined Elaine, Bruce and the boys, who were busy with the clean-up. The kitchen was probably the worst affected. Our walk-in step-up door, less pantry, had virtually exploded and strewn its contents across the kitchen. Flowers mixed with sugar, rice, pasta, spices, cereals and raisins all congealing in a primal soup of sauces and chutneys, pickles, vinegars and cooking oils. Anyone for breakfast? I inquired, proffering some spoons at the unamused faces looking up at me from the mess. Bruce was busy at the coal range, producing toast as they used to in the old days, mildly charred on one side with a not unpleasant, slightly smoky flavour. The relief on his face was evident, 
Both his beloved television set and his cask of wine had both survived the morning, and once the power was back on, all would be well again in his simple world. I decided it was time to check out the situation in the barn. Thank God we had not had guests at last night, I thought, as I walked across the paddock, my mind still reeling from the events of the morning so far. Surely if the cottage had come through relatively unscathed, then a corrugated building erected on a concrete base should be fine, and I was most relieved to discover that this was indeed the case. Tentatively stepping through the barn door, I switched on the light, remembering immediately that we had no power. There were a few things lying on the floor among the broken china and glass, but they were mainly soft craft items and bags of wool and so on. Things appeared to be in pretty good shape. Overall, I decided, the barn stay room was pretty much untouched. Things, however, were not so good upstairs. Being an avid reader all my life, I had over the years accumulated a large number of books across a wide spectrum of subjects. 25 shelves of books that I had last seen on the wall-to-ceiling bookcases on the walls at the rear of the upstairs office-study-library-overflow accommodation room were lying in a huge heap in front of me. It was as if the 45 seconds of the earthquake, over that time, the bookcases had walked themselves into the middle of the room, proceeded into the centre of the room, and then thrown themselves in a tantrum like a naughty toddler onto the floor, taking out gouges of coffee table in the process. Recruiting one of the clean-up crews of boys from the cottage, we set about the long task of sorting and clearing up the books. It was, as we started to do this, a rather complicated job, working around large pieces of bookcase that we discovered, the sea of small jagged pieces of glass and broken china and wooden ornaments that had been proudly displayed on top of and among the bookcases. The glass was predominantly fine crystal, which made the clean-up even harder and occasionally bloody. Thinking back now on what a miserable day it was for all of us, all, I feel quite humble, and our complaints pile into insignificance compared to the absolute horror and devastation and human tragedies that were to take place in just a few months' time in Christchurch. We had been so very, very lucky, and really at the time did not fully appreciate just how lucky we had been. Even now at the time of writing, there are still many people waiting on repairs and infrastructure to be rebuilt in Christchurch City. As late morning faded into mid-afternoon and with still no power, my thoughts returned to the animals and their water situation while I began my regular rounds of the farm. The adrenaline burst I had experienced earlier was now a distant memory, and it left me starting to feel very weary. However, something was able to briefly stuff bark in my brain, and I headed over in the direction of the water race, hidden away behind the trees and foliage, dividing Warwick's farm from McNasty's dairy farm. My hunch had been correct. The race, which is dry for most of the year, still had a quantity of flowing fresh water in it from the recent autumn rains. We may not have power, but we did now have water for the animals. The effort it took to ferry many buckets across the paddocks to the troughs was far outweighed by the relief, I felt, knowing that things were going to be okay after all. Power was resumed after 36 hours, and life slowly returned to normal, notwithstanding the 20,000 aftershocks we were to endure over the next couple of years. While the kids were distraught not having access to any plug-in devices for the weekend, it was Elaine who was most upset as the range of rare-breed eggs in the incubator now faced a terminal future. Being the determined lady she is, and refusing to accept anyone's advice about the futility of a rescue mission, she set about clucking over them. Fortunately, it was a warm and sunny disastrous weekend, and Elaine utilised the constructive hand of nature by placing the eggs in the veranda in the sunlight, and as it called, putting them back in the incubator and covering them in our packer fibre, with a plastic sheet over the top, and then a blanket. 
We were delighted that five days later, 13 of the 20 eggs hatched and became affectionately referred to as the birthquakers or the tremolos. Due to the February earthquake in Christchurch and the massive call on resources in the region, it was to be 20 months later before the $50,000 worth of repairs, including the erection of two ugly industrial-looking smokestacks that replaced our attractive red brick chimneys, was completed. For the repairs to the myriad cracks and fractures that were discovered by the insurance assessors, and the painting and chimney replacements to take place, we were required to vacate the cottage for two weeks. For most families, that would have been a major issue, but having the barn, we were able to enjoy a little holiday stay across the paddocks. Apart from Bruce, who was able to stay in his nearby cabin, and sit amongst the repairers' dust and debris, watching his beloved television in peace in the cottage each evening. Being a typical staunch Kiwi bloke who tends to deal with his emotions in absolute privacy, in case any perceived weakness is exposed, well, us guys never learn, I was surprised a day later when the power was back on and things were returning to relative normality that a tear did discreetly slide down my cheek. As while we were checking our emails, a whole swag of them arrived together from a dozen or so overseas guests we had hosted over the previous few years, some of whom we couldn't even remember. They were all most concerned about our welfare after the shocking news had made it to their respective countries and wanted to be reassured we were all fine, including the animals and some even asked if there was anything they could do to help us. With a pebble in my throat, I wiped my tear away and smiled radiantly at Elaine. We really touched some people's lives, and it made us both very, very humble, but also very happy, in spite of these horrible times.